Today we speak with Jerry Cantor, a homeopath and acupuncturist specializing in pediatrics, mental illness, autism spectrum ailments, autoimmune conditions, and infertility. He was the first acupuncturist granted an academic appointment at Harvard Medical School's Department of Anesthesiology, and he's a faculty member of the Ontario College of Homeopathic Medicine. He's the author of several books, including Interpreting Chronic Illness, The Toxic Relationship Cure, Autism Reversal Toolbox, and Hamisher Homeopathy. Today's episode is going to focus on his brand new book, which is going to be released very soon, called Sane Asylums, The Success of Homeopathy Before Psychiatry Lost Its Mind. And this reveals the astonishing but suppressed history of homeopathic psychiatry in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. This episode was recorded early June, so I have felt like a little kitty the month before Christmas when you're so excited for something, but it feels like forever before you can open your presents. Now, I have checked the simonandschuster.com.au, and they are showing the publishing date as the 3rd of November, 2022, and innertraditions.com is showing the publishing date as 6th September, 2022. So it is definitely worth popping on those websites and putting your name on the wait list so you can be notified as soon as the book has actually come out. But it is sounding fascinating. I cannot wait to get a copy and have a read. You can find out more about Jerry at www.vitalforcehealthcare.com. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now my mum and your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello, homies, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangouts. Today, we get to hang out with Jerry Cantor. Welcome, Jerry. Hello. What a pleasure to be here. Well, I am so excited to have you on the podcast, and um, I couldn't believe it when you replied to my email and said, yes, you'll come on. So I am just super excited to have you here and super excited to chat about your new book. But, well, you've got two, but we're going to talk about one of them. Can you maybe tell our listeners first how you introduced to homeopathy? Sure. I'm an acupuncturist. I was an acupuncturist for quite some time, so I have these dual careers, and I somehow... Uh, I, I was of the generation that we, we didn't learn herbs. Um, that was a far-fetched additional branch of study. I didn't want to learn it. I thought I could never learn all the names and so forth. There came a point when I thought, gee, I'd like to augment my acupuncture practice with something. And I thought, gee, uh, homeopathy is appealing. All I've got to do is get a program and plug some things in there, and uh, voila, I'll have a, an adjunct remedy. Um, <laughs> boy, was I wrong. Um, <laughs> I sort of feel like I got tricked into it, but it, it really is my, my, my true calling. And even when I was studying, I was say, I was discovering I didn't really like repertorizing very much. I thought I'd never be good at that, but I love Materia Medica, and I, I absorbed it as, as if through the skin. Now, I'll also say that when I was in, in acupuncture school many, many years ago, uh, I was cleaning up my house one day, and I found these notes on homeopathy. Someone apparently came to my school and gave a lecture, and I wrote these neat little notes about it and paid absolutely no attention to it, had no relevance to me whatsoever. Um, but funny things happen, and um, I, I really feel something. Something there was some kind of a calling, and however it happened, I was supposed to become a homeopath. So I stumbled into it, and um, I kind of never looked back. I find it more interesting. Chinese medicine is fabulous, but uh, mm -hmm. it became a little mechanical for me after a while. But homeopathy never ceased to be interesting to me, and just opened up so many vistas. Mm -hmm. And do you feel, feel that the Chinese medicine background has helped your homeopathy? Because there are some kind of similarities and you can definitely draw on one to help you with the other, right? Oh, my goodness. Um, you've asked exactly the right question. Th that's probably one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm 
fairly good at, is I use traditional Chinese medical theory to expl explain and to extend uh, homeopathic theory. Um, and my first book, which is Interpreting Chronic Illness, is the synthesis of traditional medical Chinese medical theory with what I call biomedicine, conventional medicine, and, and homeopathy. And I think I've come up with a, a, a very good synthesis, uh, at least for my purposes, that en enables mm -hmm. the interpretation of, of, of chronic illness conditions. And I've extended that very much in this uh, book, what I'm not going to talk about today on existential quantities, <laughs> yeah. uh, in which in which I've, I've found um, these five very core uh, existential questions that correspond to the five classical miasms. And that's oh. something that's territory I did not go into in my first book. But yeah, the, the, the Chinese medicine is... Uh, Really enables explanations that are simply not possible in, in normal normal English, mm. and uh, I've used that. I've taken advantage of that in a number of places, including my book on autism. Mm, I know. got that book, the Autism Reversal Toolbox. Uh, that's been out for many years now because I got that several years ago. I feel like it was maybe like seven or eight years ago. I think I got that book. It's really um, a second edition good. just came out just this past oh, really? week. So wow! Re revisions. So uh, that's and that's that's published through uh, Emirates. And. Yeah. I love that you're interpreting chronic illness book. You can, you know, it's available on Kindle as well because I was able to just quickly hop onto Amazon and it was available right there, there and I could just, you know, get, get it and, and start reading it straight away. So um, I love that you do that. I'm not too happy though that the book that we're going to be talking about today, Sane Asylums, I went to go get that on Amazon and it's not out until the 9th of August. So <laughs> you are just oh, going to be- the 9th? I didn't, I only know the uh, 23rd when the hard copy comes out. Oh, really? Well, it said the 9th of <laughs> August for the Kindle version and actually am I, uh, the the podcast is probably going to come out just a little bit before that. So our listeners won't okay. have to wait as long as I'm going to have to wait. <laughs> but talk to us about your new book that's coming out, Sane Asylums, The Success of Homeopathy Before Psychiatry Lost Its Mind. <laughs> what an amazing, <laughs> amazing title. But what made you decide to write this? And uh, it sounds like it was a bit of a journey down the rabbit hole for you. Talk oh to us about God. that. Oh <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm a baseball fan. And uh, one day I was just reading about homeopathy, I suppose, and I, I stumbled on, a, on, a, on an archive, a story about a homeopathic mental hospital, which pioneered the use of, of baseball as therapy. Um, this is the Middletown, Middletown Hospital for the, uh, uh, for the Insane, <laughs> is how it was called. And um, the story just absolutely amazed me. They had uh, these two superintendents, whom my book is dedicated to, Selden Talcott, um, he was an amazing man. Um, but he noticed that uh, people love watching watching baseball. His inmates love watching it. And he, he started organizing little games that included the inmates of the asylum and the staff and the doctors. And they would play baseball. They had a baseball field behind these one of the asylums. And then he noticed that people watching the games were just really fanatical about it. They actually were healthier. So what he did was he went and uh, created a, a, a very, very formidable baseball team rating Rating the uh, local local uh, teams in the area and even a minor league team, and he put this team together called the Asylums, which just blew my mind. They had uniforms at the Asylums, and uh, they barnstormed. They played all the strong. They played major league teams. They had a fantastic record. They they uh, they um, had a, a future Hall of Famer by the name of Jack Chesbro there, who briefly worked at the Asylum, and Talcott would offer five dollars or something if someone hit a home run. Everybody got completely crazy about it. Uh, what what I love one of the side stories I got such a huge kick out of was that there was a uh, a neighboring asylum in Utica, which was infamous for its creation of this torture device called the Utica crib, which imprisoned <laughs> imprisoned people, 
to punish them or to uh, to calm them down. Um, by the way, uh, this is the expression to become unhinged, I think, comes from this, because when they were let out of, they were unhinged from the device, ah, they were crazier than ever. So I think that's where the expression comes from. Anyway, uh, in nearby Utica, the minor league team, in, in obeisance to that asylum, was named the uh, uh, the Pentops. <laughs> the Pentops, oh my god! The Pentops. I, I find this just so funny, but I, 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 as hard as I researched, the asylums never played the Pentops. So that didn't happen. Well, anyway. Um, just to clarify, this was the inmates that were part of this baseball team, as well as the staff. I, I'm only using originally, the term inmates because that's what you were saying. Like, were they, were well, they called inmates or patients? Or, okay. Patients. Only originally. Yeah. What happened then was he realized that more, more hay could be made from actually having good baseball. Okay. So he, he got actual actual players. They weren't uh-huh. crazy. Okay. In my in my insane assignments, by the way, at the very end, I when I'm having a fever dream of how things will will go when the asylums come back, I I do invent a baseball team called the uh, Juggernauts. <laughs> pun on pun on uh, Juggernaut and and nuts. That would be my fantasy <laughs> team, baseball team. But um, this was just a fantastic story for me. And uh, the, the team, I have a long chapter on baseball in the book, which goes into um, really explores the the many ways in which baseball is good for mental health and there are actually some real studies about it uh but talcott um just it was he, he was very adventurous man and he went and did this but once i found out about this i should say one more thing so I, my original idea was to write a book about all the mental, all the hospitals homeopathic hospitals mm-hmm. in the country thinking oh i can do that well i was out of my mind myself <laughs> Because there are hundreds and hundreds of them, and it's it's a I had no idea how successful they were and how prominent. And I would have there would be no way I could possibly do that. So I narrowed my focus down to the mental hospitals, and I'm so glad I did because it was manageable, and uh, a tremendously compelling compelling story all all of its own. And uh, but the Middletown Hospital in in middle, was the mother church, and literally in many ways the mother church of the movement of homeopathic mental hospitals. Many, many physicians cycled through there and started their other ones, their own hospitals. And it's just just an amazing story. And, and Tal, I, I, I can't, I'm not going to summarize everything he did, but he has a chapter in the book. Um, uh, there was a number of things that were just so blessed for me. I wrote a chapter on the incarceration of Mary Todd Lincoln. So uh, the, President Abraham Lincoln's wife. And is, uh-huh. <laughs> it's one of the most researched topics in the world. The, that the Lincoln family, there's more books about the Lincoln family, perhaps than uh, anybody else, other side, aside from Jesus Christ or Karl Marx. I mean, many, many, many books about her. Um, she had a tremendous number of griefs, losing two children, having her husband being assassinated. She was detested in Washington. And uh, then she ran afoul of her son. Well, this is this is where things get murky. She was uh, there was a famous, famous trial where she was uh, judged insane and sent away. Well, anyway. There are two versions of, of this story. One is that uh, she was as crazy as a loon and uh, only got out of the asylum that she was sent to um, with the help of these lawyers. And one was that she was never crazy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the narr- narrative that I found when I researched with this is the third narrative, which is that she was really very, very much helped by homeopathy. And the story of the physician who treated her, Richard Patterson, is, is a mystery all but in itself. But I'm quite, I have 90, I'm 99% sure that he treated her homeopathically. And I have very, very compelling arguments about that. The thing was this, he had the credentials of a, of a conventional physician, mm. but everybody said, all the, even the homeopaths who were judging Mary Todd Lincoln said, oh, Senator Patterson, he's, he really, he's got something. He's got something special. Meanwhile, on paper, all he was was another moral care 
practitioner and moral care as important as it is, is basically handholding, treating mm-hmm. someone with respect and giving mm-hmm. them uh, opportunities to have get fresh air and have some cultural oh, opportunities. He had nothing else other than this magical thing that nobody would talk about. And the fact that homeopaths referred the family to him was very, very interesting. Um, he was said, "What I, what you better really read between the lines in these things." He used medicines of, of the of pop. There was all kinds of coding for homeopathy, uh, popular popular medicines of the time, which is mm-hmm. a code word mm-hmm. for it. You know, he clearly had something else, and there were there were things that he could he could do to uh, uh, detoxify her from chloral hydrate and things like that. Anyway, any, any, anyway, she was out of there, crazy as she was, in a couple of months, talking with his family and. Um, his children and uh, conversing and writing letters, and then the letter the the lawyers came along and she she was declared perfectly sane mm. at the end of her sojourn at the uh, in the Batavia Asylum, which I call a sane asylum. So that's one kind of thing that happened writing that book. Um, a complete rabbit hole I stumbled down. I couldn't I couldn't believe I found. I mean, it's maybe a, yeah. a coup, journalistic coup, 155 years later. You know. And you were you were saying this was your first historical text that you've written? I have never written a history book before. No. Yeah. Incredible. And the other and- one I, I, I'm proud of having discovered was uh, Clara Barris. Um, Clara Barris is 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 known as the muse of um, a famous naturalist. She was his honorata uh, and his executor of his estate. And he, that's what she's famous for. Well, there's a completely different thing here. For 14 years, she was the homeopathic physician and assistant to Selden, Selden Talcott at the Middletown Asylum. And she wrote an amazing book uh, called Nursing the Insane. Which I think is, uh, I, from my my limited reading in in this area, probably the greatest nursing book ever written. It is fabulous. It is so sensitive. It's so funny and so generous with such incredible uh, information. I think she deserves a a, a name for herself uh, just along those grounds. She was really drawn to the psychological aspects of care, and um, that was also a function of what happened with with women at that time. Um, even though she was a homeopathic physician, her book mentions nothing about homeopathy. It's really all the all the nursing aspects of psychological stuff. She wound up becoming a psychotherapist when she left there. But clearly, she went to a homeopathic school. She was known as a doctress, a homeopathic physician. and But she didn't feel qualified to write about that. It was not her domain. That was for the men. Oh, interesting. But uh, I, I was very pleased to be able to bring her 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 life work her in, in in nursing to people's attention. I, I think people, that's really people special. Nurses will appreciate that. Yeah. Clara yeah, that Barrows. is so special. Having um, yeah, bring yeah, like you uncovering this, so we can actually acknowledge these people. Obviously, you know, even after they're passing, but learn from them and acknowledge the work that they've done. And I'm sure that their ancestors would really appreciate that as well. So, are you saying Clara Barris was working with Talcott? in these asylums. She was there. She was there for 14 years. Amazing. And I find a funny parallel with uh, Clara Barton, another Clara B, who's mm-hmm. the, who was uh, incredibly famous for battleship for her uh, battlefield work. And uh, I find that the, the yin and yang of one another, they, they were around the same time and they both did this superb work. But Clara Barris is not, not anywhere near as famous as Clara Barton. Oh, interesting. And was, yes, Tal- uh, was Talcott a homeopath himself or how did the, oh, yeah. how did the oh, homeopathic yeah. ask? Okay. So did he, oh, yeah. was, and tell us a little bit more about, you know, how that would have operated. Like, do, do you know much about the administration of the remedies or how that would have been run or, and you said there were, there were several of these asylums in the U.S. So yeah. a number of these homeopathic superintendents were physicians in the civil war. But they had a wonderful pedigree. They're amazingly intelligent people with a wide, wide array of skills. And um, there was a career path there. Um, 
you'll, it'll, it'll be it's enlightening to see how popular homeopathy was and what what, what possibilities were open for him. He would he ran a, a hospital in New York at the charity uh, the, the charity hospital in New York. He ran the first inebriates hospital, which was homeopathic in New York City. Um, and drunkenness was an enormous problem. You will, you'll go down a rabbit hole with me if you ask that, because mm-hmm. the whole the madness was very very different in those days. Mm. It's completely different now, based on the the creation of madness, but conditions like tardive dyskinesia by our drugs. Uh, the books of Robert Whitaker um, are an amazing amazing revelation. Although we, many of us know this, how how harmful. The psychiatric drugs are. Mm-hmm. I'm not wasn't kidding when I said psychiatry lost its mind. Mm. Um, it has really done a tremendous amount of damage, and we have the mentally un- unhealthiest uh, country in the world is in in terms of mental illness. If you you look at Robert Whitaker's books, mm. um, it is very scary when you hear that there are children as young as two or three or four years old on antidepressants, and you're like, "What on oh, earth are yeah. we doing?" It is that's really crazy. Tardive dyskinesia did not exist. It was created by these drugs. So I'm finding myself writing this book and say, oh, my God, I mean, I, I, my, every, every paragraph I'm going to have to talk about how madness was different then. And so what I did was, this is a, um, another real amazing rabbit hole I jumped down. I decided to write a, a, an appendix um, section called Compendium of Madness Perspectives. Now, this is not the same as DSM-5, but from all the readings I've done, I, it's, it's really kind of an encyclopedia of every perspective on madness that there is. And when you go through that, if you have, a, you know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, like a glossary of certain things that I, I can refer to. But uh, uh-huh. I, I, what, I'm, what I want to get people away from is not to have a knee-jerk response to, 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 oh, he's mad, he's crazy. When it's basically, and these are all the arguments of Thomas Zaz, that uh, the p- people who are designated that are simply inconvenient to others. Mm. Um, mm. They're difficult. They're, they're inconvenient, or they have politically uh, unpopular ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I came up with my, I did come up with my own algorithm for what madness would be, and, and, um, which is a combination of, you know, with, in terms of, of, um, of thinking. There's something that, there's a certain state that will get you fixed on a certain idea. So it's a combination of being fixed, being frightened, and, uh, oh my God, I've got to quote myself. I wasn't prepared to, to talk about this. But it's, it's, it's simply not the same as what DSM-5 talks about. These are these mm-hmm. diagnoses, which are completely nuts. And they're so arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Um, but they cause an awful lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, I have this compendium, which is drawn from Buddhism, from every, every, every culture. Uh, this is that's beautiful. Um, so, and, and for our listeners, DSM five diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders. And now I didn't know that I googled it. <laughs> but um, so, what you're saying is you kind of did this uh, this addendum to the, uh, this compendium, which is more like a, a holistic version of looking at mental health. Uh, it's not just a holistic. It's it's a um, it kept kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It should be a book by <laughs> itself. Like I had a, a section, for example, on bloodlust, okay. right? And um, did you, you say bloodlust? Blood, oh. bloodlust. Okay. Okay. When people, fought, when when in wartime, uh, killing is absolutely not just necessary but desirable. There's, there's situations like that. Mm-hmm. Robert E. Lee, for example, said, "Oh, it's a good thing war is is, is so terrible. We otherwise we would grow overly fond of it." <laughs> you know. And I found I found there's lots of things like that that put a different uh, spin on things. You know. Yeah. And uh, depending on where you're coming coming from, what your culture is. Um, every every single concept that we have of madness is acceptable in some other context. Mm, mm. And it's it's actually and interesting. So, I love how you said it's just, uh, or you said Thomas Vaz says it's just uh, inconvenient, you know, because I can imagine <laughs> that, you know, so I, what year was the Civil War? My my history is absolutely shocking, like early 1900s, right? 
when so when there's a silent no, no mid 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 eighteen hundreds mid eighteen okay that shows you how my so husband so will laugh because. Back. I always ask him, you know, well, when did this or that happen? His history is amazing. But um, I don't know. I'm guessing witches weren't burnt at the stake then anymore. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, a few years earlier, if a woman or, you know, was trouble, they could say she's a witch and they could burn her at the stake. But by the 1850s, yeah, they probably yeah, couldn't yeah. do that anymore. So then they yeah, would just say, yeah. okay, she's insane. Go put her in a in a mental yeah. institution. So yeah. I love You'll that. You'll see I, witchcraft in my compendium. You'll see things like oh, that. Really? Mm. Oh, really? Every, every kind of thing. You know, the, the superintendents like Talcott and um, Samuel Worcester were called to testify at insanity trials when President Garfield was, was murdered. It, it was important to figure out whether this man was crazy or not. And Sultan Talcott had the stature to go and do that. And it helped the cause and it helped his credibility that he said, no, he was not crazy, this, this particular mm-hmm. murderer. So they, had, they, they thought these things through. They didn't, you know, what we do today, oh, label everybody schizophrenic. In fact, I have a whole a revisitation of that in my analysis of, of Kaczynski, Tom, um, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, but I, yeah, you have to read that and see where that comes up. He would, he would also, Sir Sultan Salkad would also almost certainly have said that Kaczynski is sane. Uh, and so, he might have needed, he would might have said he needed anacardium. Needs anacardium, <laughs> you know. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and for our listeners, anacardia was the remedy made from the cashew nut. And if you have, I remember about 15 years ago, a colleague saying to me, have you ever seen how a cashew nut grows? And I'm like, no. And he showed me a picture. And I couldn't believe it. And so you've got this cashew apple and you've got the cashew nut. And when the one is ripe, the other one is rotten. The The caricature of this remedy is the angel on the one shoulder and the devil on the other. And right. interestingly, you would like this, Jerry, is that Hilary Dorian, who also actually has a similar background in you and that she started out with acupuncture and then you know went on to homeopathy after that. She says that anacardium is the homeopathic remedy she most often prescribes for homeopaths. Whoa. <laughs> I know. What does that say? What does that say about homeopaths? <laughs> That's interesting. Well, we we all come from many of us come from marginalized uh, backgrounds. Maybe we have problems uh, integrating the personalities of our parents, which which kind of comes up in in anacardium. I can think of a number of remedies for for <laughs> homeopaths. homeopaths. I've probably gone through a number of them myself. Yeah, same here. And and the other thing is that actually this edge of sanity and insanity, it, it's so fine. Like I often think that it's it's actually just such a fine line to tip a person over. And it can often just take like, you know, a, a trauma at an unexpected time or, or whatever. I mean, at any stage of your life, really, to just tip a person over. So yeah, it, it is uh, very fascinating. I was going to ask you, with your studies, and maybe this is in the book, did Talcott ever uh, keep records of which remedies he would give people? Is there any record of any of that? Yes. Oh. They were hard to get. They were hard to get. And the way they're compiled is a little bit confusing. Uh, and also, believe it or not, there might still be privacy <laughs> privacy protections for uh-huh. some of these people. So they tended not to be, well, the names were never given. But yeah, they were. I did find in my, in my, in my searches, I did find case histories. Quite That's a few cool. That's cool. But again, just talking about it, the way, way things were described, there were such different conditions then. I mean, um, syphilis was such a big deal. Consumption was such a big deal. And ebriation. Um, Consumption, I think, is tuberculosis, yeah. hey? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah, so that was why I felt uh, compelled to create this compendium of Methodist perspectives. And that, that was another place where I could talk about these old, these old terms and what, was, uh, what they were about. You know, also eugenics, was, uh, that was another eye-opener for me, the, the, the prominence and in, 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 uh, the prevalence of eugenic points of view, even among homeopaths. Um, 
So that that would that played into the kinds of diagnostics that were, were done. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, it didn't it didn't help, didn't affect too much how homeopaths treated, but it certainly left <laughs> a bad impression when you read it from from today's standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, much worse things were done with it. Uh, it, it became what uh, eugenics in America was the was the uh, blueprint for what the Nazis eventually uh, mm-hmm. eventually did. The Nazis were delighted that Americans had come up with this notion, and boy, did they put it to work. Far out. Now, I just want to make sure because I am fast. I am really intrigued to get this uh, book myself. The compendium of the compendium of madness perspective. Is this something that is out already, or is this going to come out? Oh no, this your- is uh, this is it. This is actually an appendix section in the book. Okay, um, gotcha. I'm looking looking at it right now. <laughs> I'm just I'm just thinking um, of your of your publication schedule. So you were super no. busy in COVID. So you've got this book coming out <laughs> this year, and then you've got another book coming next year, and maybe like the full book version of the Compendium of Madness Perspective can come out. And so then you sort it for <laughs> every year. Me, yeah, one of my reviewers said that. I've actually Eric Leskowitz who wrote the forward to uh, to it. Said mm-hmm. when he found it, it was my God. This is this should be a separate book. Yeah, I, I, to me, it was a matter of expedience. I, I felt I, I had to create something like that, so I wasn't constantly mm. interspersing these explanations. I put them all in one, one big place. You want to know what, what? Uh, oh, we'll see what, what I have there. You pick anything. Um, you know, various kinds of mania, mm-hmm. dark night of the soul, or degeneracy, or um, dementia precox. You know, it's, it's all, all those things are, are back there and just uh, uh, explained, including. Chemical imbalance theory, which is totally false. I mean, that's explained back there too. I didn't want to have to do that constantly. Mm-hmm. So interesting. So chemical imbalance theory in that the theory is that if you you have some sort of chemical imbalance and if you take this drug, it's going to fix that chemical imbalance? Well, this is the, the point of view that's been pu- uh, pushed relentlessly by the PR arms of the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, I hear but a lot even of Even as clients. a psychiatrist, when they're talking officially, they, will not, they would say they know this bunch of crap. Mm-hmm. It's not true. You cannot find a chemical imbalance based on a diagnosis of schizophrenia. You will not do that. It does not happen. It's, and yet they try to distance themselves from it, even as they're making millions of dollars on the PR effect of, of that campaign. Mm, uh, absolutely. It's, really, it's really, and really disgraceful. I do see clients coming into clinic, and it's almost as if uh, somebody telling them this lie that it's due to chemical imbalance. That's some, they own that and take that label and then somehow make it okay. It's okay that I'm like this because I have a chemical imbalance you know, it's actually, it's, it's so, it's such a fine line. And so, yeah, it can actually be so damaging that you telling this person yeah. it's chemical imbalance and they think, okay, there's something wrong with me. If I take this drug, that's going <laughs> to fix that. So. Yeah. Afraid not. By the mm-hmm. way, uh, here's an easy prediction to make. If psychiatry is moving into the psychedelic area, which is frightening that these people will be in charge of that, but you watch how quickly they're going to disparage all these incredible miracle antipsychotics they've been pushing when the psych- and the, when the when these psychedelics come along and they can gain economic control of them. Suddenly, you'll hear nothing but crap, terrible things about about those about those medicines. Every year so now, when a new one comes out, oh, the previous years was that was terrible. This one is great, and they'll continue that with the psychedelics. Mm. And that's um, why I was just saying in a previous episode as well that that's one of the things I love about homeopathy is that. 200 years it's been the same we haven't gone and said oh that remedy is is, is it doesn't work anymore don't use that remedy anymore all our medicines yeah. have always throughout 200 plus years they we've never recalled any of them we've never you know gone back on any of them they've all been consistent throughout 200 years so but i will inject a note of realism here writing mm-hmm. this book um i have a chapter on um 
concessions to the spirit of the time, which is which which is about why homeopathy fell out of fashion, mm-hmm. and again the economic pressures around that, and the homeopaths were very much to blame. They well, they were under tremendous pressure to declare uh, what they were, and they were they were absolutely invited to become physicians if they renounced their theory. Mm. But the, the allopaths never had a problem. It really did not know. Did never thought it didn't work. Um, just on economic principles, they they just didn't want their lunch eaten anymore. In Talcott's day and Patterson's day, homeopaths were wealthy. Mm. <laughs> it was funny when I was writing this book. Um, my wife's a realtor, and so sometimes I'll I'll, I'll find a uh, a real estate um, website on my computer. And I Talcott's, I mean Patterson's home in Bellevue was for sale. Uh-huh. This beautiful, wow. beautiful mansion. Uh, and I said, oh my God, I mean, uh, an Italianate mansion, just gorgeous. Oh my God, I'd like to buy that. <laughs> move there. It would be so funny. It's not available. I mean, it's off the, off the uh, you can't see it anymore, but uh, it, it was. It's so weeks. interesting. It was, it was up there. <laughs> wow. Um, that's incredible. So, um, I mean, why in the first place, though, like what what was it that drew you? You had you, we had COVID and you had all this writing time. What do you feel was the essence of what drew you to writing about these asylums? Well, uh, one easy cut at it is it's, it's, it's uh, a disgrace to me to know that there's this gigantic piece of history that people don't know about. I would tell people what I wrote about this. I didn't know that. I say, right. That's why I had to write this. It would be like knowing. You're the only person who knew the War of 1812 happened, and 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 uh, you know you want to tell people about it. No, that didn't happen. I mean, so actually, my one of my early chapters is uh, called the Dead Sea Scrolls of Homeopathy, where I pretend that uh, I've discovered all these things in a in a cave. Uh, the all the documentation, well, the, it's just a metaphor for uh, for these yellowed old journals and these old books. Uh-huh. There's a publishing house out of the University of Michigan, uh, and there's a place called Forgotten Books. I swear, they, the only per- person who must be buying these books is me. They, they, <laughs> they produce these books. I buy them up. Um, as I say, Clara Barris's book, Nursing the Insane, and Tel uh-huh. Talcott's book, and Samuel Worcester's book, and uh, Robert uh, Butler's books. They're, they exist. They've been di- digitalized and, and brought out in, in, facsimil- in, in, in facsimiles. And also some of, the, some of the journal articles, key ones, have been uh, aggregated in, into, into hardcover. Are they available so anyway, online as well? Was, Google uh, uh, Hathaway, um, Hathaway, I think it's called, and, and Google Books. You can see a lot of them. Yeah. Okay. Cool. You can find them uh, if, if you do the search. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, basically, I, I said, my God, someone has to write this. I, mean, I like to write books that I would I would read, mm-hmm. but in this particular case, this, I said, my this, some this has got to be done. I mean, uh, and not only that, I this I, this has got to be published. It's got to be it's got to be uh, in, in libraries. People have mm-hmm. got to notice this because uh, it reverses. A a, um, a tremendous injustice. The the mm-hmm. the, the kiboshing of this history. Um, it's one thing to attack homeopathy for for its principles or for its science, but please, I mean, history is history. I mean, you know, we're not the Soviet Union. I mean, I mean, it's, it shouldn't shouldn't be like that. It, but it is. You look at the web it, every it, every day. It, it annoys me that how many websites of hospitals and medical schools have whitewashed their history. Uh, the, all their founders were homeopaths. Mm-hmm. I know, <laughs> or, or and there's associations of people like that. 
Yeah, Dana Ullman is really good at writing about the history of homeopathy and all the all the educational institutions in America named after Samuel Hahnemann. But the medical doctors that study there don't even know that their college is named after a homeopath, the, the founder of homeopathy, yeah. <laughs> which is quite oh, mind-blowing. I can testify to that. I had many years ago in my acupuncture office, I had a physician who graduated from Hahnemann Medical College, as it was called at that time, in uh, in, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, well, what do you uh, how do you feel about... Uh, uh, your your college having been named after this person, he had no idea what I was talking about. He had absolutely no idea. <laughs> it's incredible. So it's, I I really hope that you know maybe somewhere down the track, once this book of yours comes out and it creates a bit of a movement for people to acknowledge the history, that you know I could see a bit of a statue erected for uh, Talcott and uh, Clara. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> Clara, that'd be pretty yeah. Cool. By the way, the, the 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 monument, the memorial to Samuel Hahnemann in Washington, is is a really a work of art. It is it is probably the most beautiful monument uh, memorial in the, in the city. It, it is, is beautiful. beautiful. I've never seen it in person. I've been in Washington, oh, but yeah. I never got to see the memorial. That was before I ever studied homeopathy. That I was a lot there, of money was a lot day. of money was uh, behind that. Incredible. Um, he, he was well known. He was quite famous. Yeah, and so, so yeah, this book I had to touch a lot of bases. Um, I, I think it should have been several books, and mm-hmm. would have been easier on 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 me. I, I, you know, but but we'll see. Maybe it'll, it'll kick something off. I really Absolutely. do hope so. I really hope so too. And um, how do you see the future of homeopathy? Do you ever see a stage where we might return to using homeopathy in a silence? And then it's not that's called my, the silence these days. Hey, what do yeah, we call? I, I <laughs> read my last chapter on the on a, on, on uh, investing in sanity. I have a fever dream about what's going to happen. Yes, I, I think they could come back, but so many things have to change because we're in such a rush. Um, you, you know, the thing about that, and Clara Barris was such a genius at this. There was an engagement with the patients, so they they addressed them as persons. They addressed mm-hmm. them from the standpoint of mor- morality and every every weapon they could use of discourse to try to convert them to sanity and engage with them without medications. I mean, this is uh, really a heroic thing. So this idea of mental hygiene was very very big. Clara Barris did wonderful things. She had giggle classes. She would get everybody together and get them to get them to giggle Aww. together. And but she had a, a um, she was so strong on teaching respect for these individuals, you know? So, but it's basically, do we have time to put somebody in a, in a, in a place where they can maybe stay there, take, take a few years to recover? Mm. Uh, what do we go, you know, what do we do? We have, we have, our problems are, are, are so huge now. It'd be quite a, quite an undertaking to re, to bring that back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that, that unfortunately will come, come through in the book. This mm-hmm. is not an easy fix. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. We do need people. People need need an asylum in its in its actual meaning, a place where you can stay and recover, and uh, you know mm-hmm. from you know from what the, the sticks and arrows from uh, the life has dealt you. We have certainly created an incredible mess of our mental health <laughs> as as yeah. a you know um, civilization. So there is a lot of lot of work to do, but that's where homeopathy can be so powerful and can can. It really could help. be, but it would require our looking at ourselves, being honest, honest. And there's so much denial going on. People don't, people do not know that they're crazy or that this. They think that their their conditions are just are inevitable. They have no choice. And uh, Robert, as again, Robert Whitaker is very good at at at. at pointing this thing, these things out. And again, why I wrote the compendium, because we, we should know, we don't even know when we're crazy. <laughs> we don't know. We, we think we're perfectly okay. 
Well, I see a lot um, of p- crazy people on Instagram every single day and somehow they celebrated for their level of crazy. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's good that you've got yeah. a compendium so we can see, okay, what is actually crazy and what is not because there's definitely um, different levels out there at the moment. Oh, Jerry, it's been so wonderful to chat with you. Can you tell our listeners where they can get hold of your books? Because there, there are you've, that's about five or six books, right? So where can people get hold of their books? Where can they find out more about you? Any any lasting okay. messages that you want to leave our listeners yeah, with? Yeah, yeah. Um, my my own publishing house is uh, modest as it is. Right, right whale press. R i g h t w h a l e, and um, that's where I have the books that I published myself: interpreting chronic illness, um, the toxic relationship cure. This mm-hmm. one I wrote on um, using Yiddish yeah. to uh, <laughs> to teach homeopathy. Hamish homeopathy. That's actually a very good book uh, in disguise. It's it looks like it's a, an entertainment. I think it's too Yiddish. For the most homeopathic, too homeopathic for the Yiddish crowd, but it has 150 <laughs> remedies that it teaches with a lot of humor. Oh wow! Um, Yiddish, Yiddish, Yiddish is a, is very, very good and very, very funny in terms of uh, creating rubrics for homeopathy. Okay. So I, full of cartoons, also. So those you can get there. My book on autism reversal toolbox is through Emrys or Nature uh, Nature Reveals, mm-hmm. um, and these last two next two books will be com- are coming out through Inner Traditions uh, Bear Bear Company. Um, it's produ- it's going to be delivered through Simon and Schuster. But if you go to Inner Traditions, or just Google the titles, they'll they'll come up more more easily. As I say, the one I have coming out in twenty twenty three is has not been um, is just going through the editing phase now. But mm-hmm. Saint Asylums, you'll hear about it from various places because people like like you, Eugeni, doing such a wonderful job promoting this, letting letting folks know about it, which I appreciate so very very much. Well, I have a quick question for you. Just like, as a side note, is I always. When I purchase a book, and I am passionate about books, I want to make sure that I purchase it from somewhere where I know the money is actually going to go to the author. So is there like a preferred way to purchase the books? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, if you, yeah, right now there's a pre-order page at, at Inner Traditions. So if you Google St. Asylums, Jerry Cantor, Inner Traditions, that website will come up with a pre-order, pre-order site. Perfect. And, and I'm I- sorry it's taking so long, but, it's, but they really do a very, very good job there. It's, it's uh it's it's a serious publishing house. It sounds like it's <laughs> worth the wait. I cannot wait to get my hands on this. And am I right if I say Zegazund? Yes, Zegazund. Right? Yeah, Zegazund. Pronunciation. Zegazund. And it was wonderful chat to chat with you. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very very much, Eugenie.